This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Zeiss Sports Optics, a leading manufacturer of high-quality birding optics and advocates for young birder programs, including the ABA's own Young Birder Camps. I can tell you from experience, you will never regret treating yourself to a great pair of binoculars, and Zeiss offers great quality at a price point that works for you. Plus, you're helping to support amazing experiences for young birders. That is a win-win. For more information, visit your local Zeiss dealer or go online to zeiss.com sportsoptics. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am, as always, your host, Nate Swick. The American Ornithological Society Classification Committee decisions are out. You might remember that Nick Block and I talked about those proposals in the last episode. Sounds like we were just in the nick of time for that. As usual, there were some expected decisions and some unexpected decisions. The The white wing scoter split went through. We talked about that one. I, I think someone is going to find a velvet scoter, which is the European subspecies, full species now, somewhere in the northeast part of the ABA area, maybe Atlantic Canada, maybe New England, sometime in the not too distant future now that people are going to be really looking for them. The Fulmar split did not go through, though Nick made a pretty compelling case as to why that might be premature. In short, you know, it was based on mitochondrial DNA, not nuclear DNA. The committee likes to have both. Can't complain too much about that. The big question was whether that committee was going to do anything about these common name changes that were on the agenda this time around. They did not. They punted, which is... What they have done in the past when presented with, you know, admittedly less charged common name changes. So McCown's Longspur is still McCown's Longspur, but it is not McCown Longspur. I understand why they didn't make the change, even if that understanding is more or less based in a sort of cynical interpretation of the committee's doings. I, I think it would behoove the classification committee to come up with a strategy for dealing with things like this, because I, I don't think they're going to go away. Any interested party can make a proposal to the AOS classification committee, and they will, because I think we are, you know, as a birding culture, becoming more introspective about the way that we interact with these bird names. Maybe this is sort of the predictable outcome of the change from old squat to long-tailed duck those years ago. You know, I have I have talked some with great enthusiasm about how birding is one of those special sciences in which hobby interest and scientific interest align and, you know, even in some cases come right up against each other. I know that the AOS Classification Committee thinks of itself rightly as a scientific body and, and science very much prides itself on not being swayed by popular opinion. But in these cases, you know, there is value in making overture to these moments or at least, you know, being transparent about why we choose the names we do or, or what we want these names to say about our community. It might not matter to committee members or to, you know, scientists who are speaking the language of binomial nomenclature, but it could matter to the people that we we need to be on our side. There's a, a PR aspect, loathe though. Some may be to consider it. And, and we need more people on our side when the rubber hits the road and we're talking about wildland protections. You know, it it's food for thought, at least. 
On the show today, I recently finished up my breeding birds survey roots, and I want to talk briefly about what those two early mornings mean to me and why you should find yourself a route near you if that's possible. But first, those big windows on buildings all over the place can be pretty problematic when it comes to migratory birds who are not good at dealing with reflective surfaces. Bird strike expert Heidi Trudell is with me to talk about dead birds and what you can do to see fewer of them around your own house. That's after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last part of June 2019. Summer is an interesting time of year, full of southwestern species blowing up into northern parts of the continent. This year has already seen some interesting examples of that phenomenon. Black-bellied whistling ducks already pretty prone to nomadism, are all over the northeast of the continent. We've seen a big movement of Wilson's plovers northward on the Atlantic coast. There have been quite a few tropical kingbirds around the continent this month. That's a particularly interesting one because the South American population of that species is an austral migrant, so southern hemisphere birds that go north in the southern hemisphere fall, our spring, and this early summer movement is in line with what you'd expect from a bunch of overshooting austral birds. But this space is normally about rarities and firsts, so I'll get to those. This time of year is all about Asian vagrants in Alaska, and they've had their share. Most notable recently was a gray wagtail in Nome. But Alaska had a first documented record of a bird from the south this period when a snowy plover was photographed in Cordova, proving that good birds come from both directions. Another potential first comes from North Carolina, where an apparent red-footed booby was photographed from a cruise ship in nominally North Carolina waters. It was something like 60 miles offshore, which is even farther than the Gulf Stream pelagics typically go. Not the most satisfying way to get a first record, but one nonetheless. And one of the cooler records for the year was a spectacled eider seen from Herschel Island in the far, far north of Yukon Territory on the Beaufort Sea. This is a first territorial record and potentially a first Canadian record. Two previous reports of spectacled eider from British Columbia are not typically considered valid. Uh, Spectacled eider is a Bering Sea specialist and quite rare even on the north slope of Alaska, so a notable record all around. I only covered a few of the best records of the last couple weeks. For all the rest, please check out the ABA blog every Friday and join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Birders love to watch the birds at their feeders from the comfort of their own home, but those windows we depend on can cause quite a few problems for birds, something that Heidi Trudell is all too aware of. She is the doyon of dead birds, the wizard of window strikes, and the creator of the Facebook group Dead Birds for Science and the website Just Save Birds, all of which she hopes help make the world a safer place for birds. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nate. Where did this interest in dead birds come from? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's never an, an easy answer to something like that because I have, yeah. I have been... It wasn't a leading question or anything. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> I've been completely hooked on birds for as long as I can remember. Um, mm-hmm. But the first dead bird that I was aware of was a road-killed indigo bunting uh, that I found outside of Corpus Christi. Uh, in 1992. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's been on my radar for a while, to say the least. Yeah. In my mind, there's always like something really fascinating about holding a bird yeah. in your hand. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's something just so strange. You see these things are so full of life. And then to have it sort of in your hand and to be able to see how all the parts work at something, I, I don't know. Like I'm, I've always been a nature geek in that same way. So, you know, alive or dead, it hasn't really 
bugged me too much, but there's something weird about being so close to something that, that seems so far away most of the time. That I think is what is incredibly important about having people comfortable with being around dead birds and introducing mm-hmm. them to dead birds as a concept. Um, mm-hmm. Because I'm super close sighted, nearsighted. I can't, mm. <laughs> I can't see anything in that direction unless I've got binoculars. Um, without glasses, I'm legally blind. So I did get glasses when I was seven. So that might've helped, but um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just being aware of birds. Um, I didn't get into bird watching until 98. So mm-hmm. I had a good long gap of not even paying attention to things outside. But when you have something in your hand and it's tangible, it's, I think in a way more real than the stuff that you see, but you don't really see. And then it goes away. Um, yeah. Because that is, you know, without binoculars, most of people's interactions with wild birds. Um, and for an indigo bunting, like I had no idea what it was. It was just this absolutely shocking blue um, yeah, absolutely. And, and my parents helped me identify it, and then we buried it. And in hindsight, like, oh, that could have been my first specimen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you focused a lot of your work on window collisions. Yeah. So what exactly is the, the threat that windows pose? You know, what are they seeing that causes so many problems? What are they not seeing? Not uh, <laughs> seeing, or not seeing, right. <laughs> yeah, so birds can't see glass. Um, yeah. There are about half a dozen different ways that birds can not see glass and they are all combinations of um, either reflection or if you can see through say bus shelters are super popular you you can see through them because they are glass Um, whereas mirrored buildings are mirrored so you see trees you see sky and you know people think that we're fancy they think we're an exception um if engineers and programmers who work at Apple can go to the emergency room because they walked into a glass door. <laughs> right, like, yes. How fancy are we really? You yeah, know? yeah, I was going to say, like, this is an issue that uh, like we have had before. Dogs <laughs> you know, and, have it. Um, yeah, right. Deer charge their reflections. Like, this, yeah. is, this is not just bird specific. So I, I am of the firm belief that if deer hit windows more often, or if deer could fly, this would have been solved a long time ago. <laughs> and it's, it's been effectively solved uh, in terms of we know how to stop it. Right. But implementation is definitely lagging. Yeah. What should people do when they find an injured or a, or a dead bird outside their window? So injured birds, there's an app called Animal Help Now. And yeah, you can type in, I think it asks for your zip code and the Mm -hmm. kind of animal and it pulls up a list of phone numbers for local rehabbers. And yeah, you might have to drive it half an hour, two hours, depending on where you live. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're really lucky, there will at least be a rehabber within range. But between that and U.S. Fish and Wildlife and um, all of the state DNR places will have a website that lists phone numbers. You might have to make a couple calls. Mm -hmm. Uh, You might have to keep things overnight. If it's a weekend, people are swamped. Again, rehabbers, (laughs) they have a lot going on. They're not federally funded. They rely on donations and they can't be everywhere at once. Um, Most of them don't have the manpower to do rescues or transport. So it's, it's up to you to want to catch the bird because if you're calling about a bird that isn't in the hand, then like, yeah, you're kind of on your own. Yeah, <laughs> this has got to be a super busy time for rehabbers too. This late, <laughs> late 
spring, early mm-hmm. summer time. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of baby birds out there. Yeah, I don't even rehab and my phone blows up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you know, lots of birds that are, you know, they have their they have their minds, for lack of a better word, on like feeding feeding chicks, feeding mm-hmm. chicks. So they're not really paying attention to things yeah. like automobiles Cars. or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, they're they're just trying to get from point A to point B with that worm. And it's really important that birders, especially because people are asking us because they know that we like birds and we're interested mm-hmm. in birds. They're contacting us because, you know, we as individuals are whatever local authority they know of. Right. right. Uh, or not so local authority. Yeah. Um, Internet authority. <laughs> yeah. This doesn't stop my mom from reaching out and she's in Germany half the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even know how to translate wildlife rehabber or what the structure <laughs> is for over there. That's what we do. Uh, we get questions about what to do with baby birds, what to do with injured birds. So for injured birds, find a rehabber, call mm-hmm. until you can find someone that can take it and make sure that they're not just going to put it in a dark, quiet box and ignore it for two hours. You can't look at a bird and magically know what's going on. There's some there's some assumptions that sometimes can be safely made, but leave that to a professional. So what if you find a, a bird that's already dead? Yes, my favorite. Yes, so, that's what we move on to a, so, a more happier topic. Well, I don't know. My, my, logic, my logic here is that there are people who do really well with live birds uh-huh. and more power to them. Mad props to the rehabbers out there who mm-hmm. can handle that stress. But when I find a bird that's alive, part of me panics. It's like, ooh. Right. I it's less cut and dried. Yeah. This, or if I do anything even slightly wrong, I could really mess this up. Mm-hmm. And usually that is just grabbing it, putting it in a brown paper bag, and then taking it straight to rehab. Yeah. So I just try to get it to someone who knows more what they're doing as fast as possible. Um, but yeah, eBird is for live birds. And birdmapper.org specifically is for birds that hit windows. Now, if it's dead, but it didn't hit a window, iNaturalist covers everything else. All the other stuff. Yeah. So it wasn't until really last fall that birdmapper.org even existed. And yeah, that's that's something I've not heard of before. mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. It takes a little bit of of feeling it out to get the hang of it. Uh, But once you have a login, it's super intuitive. You just snap a picture of the bird, you drop a pin, you can zoom in super close, um, and then you specify the set of building. If you don't know what species, you just write unknown species. Um, like that's the, that's the great thing about dead birds too. Nobody has to identify anything, even remotely mm-hmm. accurately, because it's in the bag. You go back, right. you, <laughs> you take lots of pictures, but then, yeah, because things go to collections, mm-hmm. you know. I still occasionally get notes about, hey, you know, this thrush that came in was mislabeled. Surprise, it was gray cheek. Like, oh, yeah, I forgot those even exist. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you you do get a much more interesting, uh, dare I say, appreciation of stuff when it's dead and in the hand, like woodcocks. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. oh, the males do have differently shaped primary feathers than hmm. the females do. I had no idea. That's how they make that noise. So would you would encourage people to hold on to dead birds they find um, so legally, to get them, get them to it. Yeah. I was going to say like, are the fish and wildlife dead bird police going to come? Legally, come this people? is my disclaimer. Yeah. Know who you need to take dead things to before yeah. you need to take them. Yeah. So That's a good as idea. soon as I moved to Michigan, I dropped a note to the university of Michigan because they're 15 minutes away. And it's like, Hey, dead birds find me. And they were like, ah, you're 15 minutes away. This will be fine. Cool. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, it, it is technically not legal to possess birds, their eggs, their nests, their feathers, their bones. Um, there is an asterisk there too. House sparrows, starlings, knock yourselves out, pigeons. <laughs> those are not federally protected. But everything else, you do need permits. Mm-hmm. So I technically have salvage permits, which means I can pick up dead bird at point A and I can transfer it to point B. Mm-hmm. There may be a gap of hours. There may be a cap, a gap of weeks. Um, the point is I'm authorized and the birds know where they're going. Yeah. Um, they have a, a final destination. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell you, I, I, I don't have a permit, but mm-hmm. I do know people at mm-hmm. my state museum. Mm-hmm. And anytime I find something, I'm like, Hey, I have this, I will get this to you as soon as possible. Yeah and and let them know and they're usually okay with that Mm -hmm. and the sooner the better um yeah you know if it's like a threatened or endangered species obviously that's a whole new bundle of paperwork and uh the most red tape you'll probably ever deal with is eagles do they hit windows often so not that i know of Uh, (laughs) peregrine falcons however yeah i could believe that about half a dozen peregrines that we know of every year end up hitting windows which blows my mind because you're like reading the news and oh, a peregrine hit a window in Kalamazoo or yeah. San Francisco or like this is stuff that actually gets publicized. Whereas if we had that kind of publicity for oh, everything birds. else, yeah. we, would, we would be drowning in those headlines. But um, to get back to the permit question, if you ever find an eagle, Stay with it while you make every phone call in the books to U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Yeah, um, your state, your state people don't even technically have authority to. Oh wow! Deal huh. with it. Yeah, every every dead eagle in the country has to be processed through the Eagle Repository. That is a lot of paperwork, but yeah. really cool, super interesting. Um, and if folks aren't familiar with it, they should definitely look it up. So every dead bird that you find and or pick up should be tagged with the date, the location as close as possible, cause of death if known. Um, Species, again, not super important since somebody else will be verifying that later. Um, But finder's name and contact information are super, super important because that is how we can follow up and ask more questions if need be uh, or let you know that, hey, the toxicology uh, samples came back showing all kinds of really interesting things. Hmm. Um, So like the ivory gull in Flint, we don't think it died of West Nile necessarily, but it turns out it had West Nile. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. For a species that spends that much time so far north, for it to have West Nile is pretty eye-opening. So yeah, with with dead birds, they can get samples, tissue samples, DNA samples, crop samples. There's so much that you can learn from a, a bird in hand, especially now that we have the technology to do all these um, analyses. But yeah, having having things correctly labeled is super important and making sure that you get the, the specimen to folks, ideally well before December, if you pick up something in December, um, you know, it's kind of pushing it, but uh, everyone has to file their state and federal reports. Oh, right. Mm-hmm, by the end of January for the previous year. 
And so, so most states have and provinces have museums, universities that have these sort of collections that will take those birds. So th- those would be the people you would want to get them to. Yeah. So you can call nature centers or some local colleges can point you in the directions of larger local uh, college collections. Um, but generally it is either natural history museums, um, academic research collections, worst case scenario, and throw the bird in your freezer and hit up dead birds for science, we can probably find <laughs> someone somewhere near you. <laughs> get you to the right place. Yeah. yeah. So what are, what are some things that people can do to prevent bird strikes in their own homes? Oh, so the best resource for, I would say everything, um, is the American Bird Conservancy mm-hmm. and flap.org. So Fatal Light Awareness Program of Canada mm-hmm. Um those are the two main organizations that have really, really good resources in terms of in-depth looks at how you can place your feeders super close to the windows for your actual residences. Um, there are products available that have to go on the outside of the glass. Everything basically has to go on the outside surface of the glass. So, If you're standing in your yard and you have a tube of lipstick, I mean, it could be almost anything as long as it shows up with a a nice visible contrasty mark. You can just take that tube of lipstick and put a dot every two inches across the entire surface. And that will do the trick while you do your Hmm. homework. It will not, however, prevent that robin or that cardinal that sees its reflection and really wants to beat up that super... (sighs) gorgeous bird that's in its territory. Right. That's more of a rubber snake on the windowsill or just tape up a trash bag over the window um, on the outside, of course. Yeah. Um, Or wet newspaper. If they're attacking your side mirrors on your car, just take a grocery bag and put it over the side mirror and just tie it off for the day and then take it off when you need to drive home. But for, for point A to point B collisions, Having your bird baths, your bird feeders, anything that is attracting birds within three feet of the glass on it would be great. Um, But within three feet, because even with stuff on your windows, if a hawk goes by, they're going to scatter in whatever direction they're pointing. Like things will still hit, but that, that close proximity keeps them from building up too much momentum. And so it oh, stops them okay. from hurting themselves too badly. So you'll still have things hitting at that point. Um, not as often and not as hard. What about those uh, those hawk stickers uh, that seem to be extremely <laughs> popular? No good. Uh, so um, I don't know why they still exist. Uh, if the <laughs> packaging was labeled correctly, it would say to have one of those like you know, two per square foot of glass uh, <laughs> but nobody covered the that. glass with hawk stickers that is honestly what it takes to be effective no they put the one in the corner it's more like a decorative thing than an actual effective thing in one of my presentations i have an image from a nature center that uh i will not name had a hawk sticker up in one corner had a uv leaf snowflake thing kind of off to the other side and then one kind of down in the middle and then someone in the corner had stuck like a Halloween spider web decal thing. I took those mini post-it notes and I went to the outside of the glass. And for every smudge of feathers, mm-hmm. I stuck one post-it note up. And 
there were like 25 of them on what was essentially the smaller than a sliding glass door. Yeah. And that was a nature center that had decals that, you know, was teaching the the public what they could be doing at home effectively, Mm -hmm. which nature centers, they need to lead by example. It, It blows my mind that they don't have ABC bird tape comes mm-hmm. in two sizes and you can make a bunch of different patterns. You just have to make sure your spacing is when I say as close as possible, two by two inch spacing is what I suggest for everyone right now. ABC still has, um, paperwork that says two by four inch spacing that should be changing in the new version of the, the bird safe building guidelines whenever those come out because so my specialty is low rise buildings and almost 20% of what we pick up is hummingbirds. Oh, wow. And hummingbirds don't care about two by four inch spacing. Yeah. They think they can fit through that area. They're (laughs) used to buzzing at full speed through the tiniest gaps. So two by two inch spacing is what I preach. Have you have you seen any success stories? Have you seen any oh, nature yeah. centers or people who have taken these suggestions to heart and yeah. really seen a decline in in bird strikes? Absolutely. So um, the last fun example I heard was from someone in Florida who had put up a copian bird savers. So I've already mentioned ABC bird tape. Mm-hmm. A copian bird savers. They're super easy DIY project. Essentially, it's black nylon paracord that is hung on the outside of the glass, Mm -hmm. and it's spaced every four inches, and it hangs there. People can tie it down at the bottom or leave it loose. Uh, Some people call them zen wind curtains, but (laughs) essentially, it's just little thin black stripes on the outside of your window, and they're super easy to ignore once you're used to them. Um, Or some people it takes a while to actually notice them. So that's kind of handy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the folks in Florida put up a copian bird savers and in the span of something like 10 years, they had one strike that they felt super bad about because it was like a pine warbler. So they scooched the cords to a three inch spacing and you know, that's been a couple of years now, but wow, yeah, the beauty of the four inch spacing with something that is not touching the glass um, depending on how strong the reflections are, you end up with twice. I was going to, yeah, uh-huh. I can see that. Cause you get the, you get the actual physical cord and the cord reflection. and the reflection of the cord. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. So that's really handy because it's not on your glass. You can take it down and wash your windows. You can leave it up. So it's, it's fairly versatile Yeah. with, especially if you're renting a place and you're not allowed to actually do stuff on the glass. Right. Right. Again, not entirely foolproof, but pretty darn close. ABC bird tape, again, that's more of a permanent option because it's not really designed to come off. Yeah, hard uh, to get to. There's, there's a product called Kaleidoscape that comes in a ton of different sizes, shapes, colors, patterns. Um, it's almost infinitely customizable for like 100% bird proof everything. They have a solid product, which essentially is bus wrap. Um, when you see a bus that has an advertisement printed on the side, uh-huh. you can't see in, but people on the inside can see out. Can see out. Oh, okay. Oh, that's cool. It's yeah. basically like looking through a screen. 
I want to I want to talk a little bit about the way that you approach this subject on social media. You know, the Dead Birds for Science page is pretty popular for for such a <laughs> I, I, I don't know I don't I want to say morbid, but maybe it, it does seem like people sometimes have problems seeing dead birds. And it, you know, how do you get this important issue out in front of people in a way that sort of prevents them from immediately disengaging with it? Yeah, it's hard because. It is very challenging to say, hi, you posted this picture of a bird in your hand and you called it a fledgling. And in the picture, you're letting your dog sniff it. (laughs) Like if you got hit by a car and I brought my pet bear over to sniff you. (laughs) And and so trying to tell people like, no, you you shouldn't try to rehab it at home. Um, Yes, you shouldn't freak out because this bird is dead. Like... So, so trying to tactfully and diplomatically just let people know best practice is this. Yeah. Your closest rehabber is this. You found a dead bird. Here's what's cool about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of what the dead birds Facebook page is so good at. Cause it, it I don't know, it normalizes this, these interactions yeah. with, with dead birds, the folk that people maybe don't, you know, freak out mm-hmm. or, you know, sort of calmly think about ways in which they can, prevent these sort of things yeah. from happening. It's sort of an interesting, interesting thing. And, and, you know, and as we talked about earlier, there is something sort of fascinating about having mm-hmm. a bird in your hand, even if it's, even yeah. if it's dead, like that is a really interesting way to engage with nature. Um, it can be, it can be like really meaningful. One of the saddest things that I've seen was a post in which, you know, someone put a picture of, um, gosh, I want to say it was a great gray owl mm-hmm. that had been hit by a car and the the comment was you know this is the bird i you know shuffled it off into the woods um but there were a bunch of birders around and they were like you know spreading its wings and taking pictures of it and like playing with its feet it's like dude when are you going to get a chance to do that to a great yeah gray? right like yeah. even if you have like an education great gray that's alive and in some you know rehab it is not going to let you play program. with its feet. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. Like this is your chance to be like, oh, when you stretch the leg out, the feet open, and then when you pull it back, the feet close. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the kind of stuff that people don't get to see enough, and I, yeah. I don't know if it's because we have some sort of weird mythical reverence for nature that somehow doesn't stop us from having balloon releases. Um, mm. Too much disconnect there, I guess. Yeah, we're incredibly <laughs> short-sighted in a lot of ways. There is a lot of nuance, especially with windows, because when I talk to birding groups, it's really depressing because out of like 20 people, there will be one or two who get it. Mm -hmm. A few who are like, oh, bird is dead. I'm sad. And then they disengage. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the middle ground is, well, I'm a birder. I have something on my window. I'm good. Because they already did a thing. They know a lot about birds. A lot of them know that birds are still hitting, but they assume that it's a lower rate because clearly they did a thing, which must be doing something. Yeah. Well, they don't have the baseline, I guess. Yeah. 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 And the average house without feeders kills like eight birds a year. Hmm. So the average house with feeders is potentially killing upwards of 30 birds a year, depending on you know where you're located, what your seasons are like, what your habitat mm-hmm. is. Like there, There's so many factors in, in looking at how and why things hit, which again is, is why I, I do consult on this because I've helped a lot of programs around the world get set up 
to both monitor their windows because most places don't want to spend any money until there's some sort of data set that says, yes, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And then it turns into, well, you know, is a hundred birds a year really a problem? Actually. Yeah. Because feeder birds are not necessarily migrants. Uh, But during spring and fall migration, you have these neotropical breeders or boreal breeders who are neotropical migrants. If the entire U S was just, I mean, it kind of is a wall of glass, depending on who you're asking. We can have pristine habitat on both sides, but if they all die hitting windows in the middle, then what are we actually doing here? Yeah, you might have to sacrifice looking through a screen at your feeders. If you don't want to look through a screen, there's, again, feather-friendly dots, which are super easy to ignore visually. Solix is a window film that the new Intuit building well, I guess it's not the new Intuit building. Intuit just did a whole new renovation and um, they put that on the outside of their building and you can't see it basically by the time you're 10 feet away. So it's really subtle, but it stops birds from hitting. That's great. I really appreciate you out there, you know, fighting the good fight. Heidi Truda loves dead birds. She loves lives ones too, as should be said. Um, you can find her stuff at the Facebook group, Dead Birds for Science and the website, justsavebirds.com. Heidi, thanks so much for chatting with me. Absolutely. Last week, I finished up my breeding bird survey obligations for the year, and like every other single year that I've been doing it, I, I miss it a little once I'm, once I'm finished. I don't miss the 4.30 a.m. wake-up call or the car maneuver tango at every stop so I'm off the road but not in the ditch, or the worry that one of the people in one of the houses near one of my stops one of these days will call the cops on me, but definitely the sense of being involved in this long-term community science project. If you're not familiar with the Breeding Bird Survey or the, the BBS in birder parlance, it was started in 1966 by the one and only Chandler Robbins. The protocol involves driving a 25-mile route, stopping every half mile to do a three-minute point count of all the birds you can see and mostly hear in that period. And the idea is that over decades, doing the same type of count in the same spots for so many years gives you good data on the population shifts of the birds in the area. And you know, the three-minute point count is, is legitimately sort of the gold standard for a quick survey. It's, it's just long enough that every bird in the area is likely to vocalize at least once in that period, and short enough that you can get through 50 of those things before the day gets hot and everything, except, of course, the eternal red-eyed vireos, shuts down for the day. And in this period, this, these decades that they're keeping this data... Habitats change, population changes, climate changes, and you can sort of witness that. I have two roots, and I just recently took on a third. I guess you could say that I have a problem. Uh, And the one that I've been doing the longest, I've been doing it long enough to watch fields where I used to hear grasshopper sparrows grow up into brushy pastures where I now get orchard orioles. I've seen woodlots get bulldozed into housing developments. I've seen car traffic increase a lot. Those are both interesting things and troubling things, and occasionally, if sort of rarely, nice things. But above all, they're sort of comforting things. My BBS roots are the birding equivalent of a really comfortable pair of sweatpants. I know pretty much exactly what I'm going to get. It's going to be the same mix of 65 to 70 species North Carolina Piedmont regulars. 
I don't even look forward to the possibility of rarities because, you know, the habitat isn't the sort of place where you'd find them. It's woodlots and pastures and some far-flung, lightly zoned housing tracks. That doesn't mean that there aren't any surprises, though. This past year, I, I found a locally uncommon horned lark in an untilled soybean field, the sort of bird that my local community of county listers was very interested in. It might be nesting there because of the field is not in production this year like it has been in years past. When I first became aware of the BBS early in my birding career, I considered it the height of birding acumen to have a root. When you're doing the BBS, you know, you've made it as a birder. And now that I've been doing it for a while, I realize it's much more like most other volunteer efforts. Uh, willingness to do it is the key. And there is a certain expectation that you'll do the route every year and enter your data into the U.S. Geological Survey's somewhat creaky data entry system, which hangs up a lot of people, I've discovered. What I mean by all that is that this is a great project to get involved with. There are vacant routes all over the continent. It's worth checking out on the BBS website. Uh, the link is in the show notes to see if there's one near you. Uh, if you're reasonably familiar with the bird vocalizations in your area and you've got some time, you know, I'm usually done with my route by 9.30 a.m. You know, this is a great way to get involved and to learn about uh, local birds in your area. You know, Knowing your bird sounds is important, but you hear a lot of the same things. On my routes, I hear a lot of cardinals, robins, goldfinches, morning doves, the, the regular stuff. But it's important to keep track of those too, and you'll feel super accomplished having helped to do so. Just remember to set your coffee maker for 4 a.m. and be ready to explain what a bird survey is to skeptical residents. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and we could not do what we do without the help of members and donors. You can join the ABA to help support this podcast and the many free resources we provide to the birding community. The whole thing comes out to just over four bucks a month. That's that's less than Netflix. Joining the ABA helps keep us doing what we're doing. You can get more information at aba.org slash join and learn about our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. Special shout-outs to Ted Gonchalak of Langley, British Columbia, Richard Eberhardt and Mary Barilla of Braintree, Massachusetts, Michael and Lori Kennedy of Egg Harbor City, New Jersey, Johnny Simpson and Hannah Muchnick of Baltimore, Maryland, Nathaniel Knight of Molino, Oregon, Greg Neems of Providence, Rhode Island, Melanie Gaddy of Merle's Inlet, South Carolina, Margaret Dykeman of Munns Park, Arizona, Hunter Hamilton of Rhinebeck, Iowa, William and Jane Knapp of Sarasota, Florida, Trina and Bill Anderson of Gainesville, Florida, Katie Hodge of Washington, D.C., all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thanks for that and welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. His favorite BBS route is to apply a foaming cream and pull the razor in the direction of the hair growth, which is the best way to get that baby butt smooth. Technical production is by John Lowry. His favorite BBS route has a cruise speed of 10 knots and a range of 4,500 nautical miles. No word on whether you have to stop every half nautical mile at the Barcelona Boat Show. Extra help comes from Greg Nice and David Hartley. Their best BBS route ran from Nippon Budokan in Tokyo to Club Quattro in Osaka to Zep Nagoya in Nagoya following acclaimed Japanese electronica act, Boom Boom Satellites. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We did a BBS once, but the instant we got to our farthest point, we immediately turned around and came back. 
That's what you get with the British Boomerang Society. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.ava.org. I'm Nate Swick. Be back soon. Thanks for listening.